The reading is taken from Joshua chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord, went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, carrying the seven trumpets, went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. We will pause this reading here. It's Christ. Amen. Amen.
On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the tr trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men, Joshua had sent the spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. The readings end here. It was deep in thought. How on earth was he going to conquer Jericho? That impregnable fortress that stood between his army and the land of Canaan. God had miraculously brought everyone across the River Jordan, but, but what now? And while he's thinking and pondering and wondering and praying, he hears a noise and he looks up and he's startled to see right in front of him a man standing there with a drawn sword. 
I had no idea where he'd come from, hadn't heard of approach, but suddenly there he is. And if this man is an enemy, then Joshua is in trouble. He knew his life hinged on whether this man was an enemy or a friend, and hence his anxious question, are you for us or for our enemies? To which he gets the disconcerting and unexpected answer, neither. But then the stranger says something which fills Joshua with awe. I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the God who will fight for his people. This is the God who will lead them to victory. This is their supreme commander-in-chief. And it's as God comes to take command that Joshua will win the battle of Jericho and conquer the city in a miraculous fashion. This is the warrior God who fights for his people. Not everyone is comfortable with that picture as God is the commander of an army who fights and destroys his enemies. In some quarters it's quite unpopular. A guy called Greg Boyd has ordered that the has argued that the true character of God has been revealed in Christ. And that effectively means that the warrior God has been crucified with Christ. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is actually completely non-violent. And it's a measure of his condescension to our fallen human nature that he's allowed himself to be misrepresented in Scripture as violent and abusive. It's like the brightness of God's complete self-revelation in Christ plunges other pictures of him into deep shadow. We say, if God is really like this, then actually we can't, we can't quite really see God like that. If you want to explore that option further, you could read Greg Boyd's book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, but it is nearly 1,500 pages long. So like me, you may prefer to rely on someone else's summary of his argument. Yet the warrior God is not, not easily dismissed. It comes up in unexpected places. We read together Psalm 84, a psalm which expresses a heartfelt longing to be in the temple of the Lord. It's on the face of it a psalm about peace and tranquility and the joy of being in the presence of the living God. Yet God is repeatedly given the title here, the Lord Almighty, which is how the New International Version chooses to translate the title, the Lord of Hosts. This is the king in charge of his armies. This is the commander-in-chief. And when you realise that, there are other warlike aspects of the psalm, which you think, I missed that. God is a shield. You only need a shield in a situation of conflict. The word used for strength in the phrase, from strength to strength, has connotations of military might or valour. Juxtaposed with the tranquility of being in the presence of God, there is this warlike imagery of God as being in charge of his army. So it makes me wonder whether the psalm actually is, is... We could see it as the longing of a soldier on the long march home 
after a victorious campaign. He's been, he's fought, he's won, he's survived, and now he just wants to be back in the temple, in the presence of the living God, because this is what he was fighting to protect and defend. And maybe the tranquility and the security and the peace of being in God's presence are only there because it is the Lord of hosts who has been with him to be his shield and his fortress and protect him and keep him safe. We have peace because God fights for us. Because God defends us against our enemies. And it's good to know sometimes that we do have a God who fights for his people and protects us, who comes to our defence. And so we come to the story of the Battle of Jericho and we can be heartened by the knowledge that when God takes command, nothing stands in his way. There is no enemy who can withstand us. Through God we are indeed more than conquerors. It is God who gives us the victory, just as he did for Joshua in such a dramatic fashion. It's a great story. I'm sure that those of us who went to Sunday school had it told to us. Those of us who've taught in Sunday school have probably taught it. Sue and I are big fans of the Beginner's Bible, which really brings Bible stories to life for small children. And Jericho is there. God told Joshua, march your army around Jericho with the priests blowing their horns. Do this once a day for six days. On the seventh day, have your army march around the city seven times. Joshua did exactly as God had said. The priests blew their trumpets, the soldiers shouted as loudly as they could, then the great walls of Jericho came tumbling down and the Israelite army rushed in and took over the city. It's great because actually the city collapses without a fight, without a blow being struck, without any casualties, without any blood being shed until they get in the city. And verse 21 spoils the story rather for the pacifists among us. Every living thing in the city, men and women, children and old people, cattle, sheep and donkeys, were all devoted to the edge of the sword. And only Rahab and her family were spared. What do we make of this? Right in the midst of the victory and and the glory of God, winning the fight without a blow being struck, there is this, this slaughtering of the inhabitants of Jericho to a man including men, women, children, old people, and animals. You might remember, not so long ago, I preached a sermon on Deuteronomy when I suggested, actually, if you look at Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, you see that the command to wipe out all the inhabitants of Canaan can be traced back as far as Moses, but you can't find a place where God actually commands it. The command to slaughter the Canaanites is found in Deuteronomy, which is Moses' account of what God tells him to do. But when you go back to Exodus, which tells what God actually told Moses to do, it's not there. Uh, God tells Moses to do this, and Moses said to the people, God has told me to do that. Uh, The slaughtering comes from Moses, but we can't trace it back to God. If that's the case, then what we actually have in Joshua is a religious leader carrying out an atrocity in God's name and doing something that God neither sanctioned nor commanded. That's a disturbing scenario. But it happens all the time. People commit atrocities in the name of God 
and do not act in accordance with God's commands. And it may be that this is there as a warning to us to be on our guard and to watch out for that. Some people, pondering the question, ask whether the destruction of Jericho ever actually took place as a historical event. Um, Jericho was built in an area prone to earthquakes, and there is evidence to suggest that at one point in its history, when Jericho was a strongly fortified city, it suffered an earthquake, and the city was shortly afterwards conquered and burned to the ground. That's a scenario that fits very much with what we read in Joshua. Maybe it was an earthquake demolished the walls and the city was raised to the ground. The problem is that we can't match that event with either of the dates that people usually associate with Israel going into the land of Canaan. And the consensus is that at the time when Joshua is said to have gone in, the city was unoccupied. The dating is at least a century out. Various arguments have been put forward, as you would expect, to bring the date of the earthquake into line with the date of the events recorded in Joshua, but none of them has commanded widespread support. The consensus remains that the biblical account is not supported by the archaeological evidence, and that's difficult. Some of us may find it deeply disturbing. Did the events not take place just as the Bible says? Well, the reality is that the farther back in history you go, the harder it is to find clear historical proof that verifies the biblical account. And people part company over how to respond to that. There are those who say with good reason that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Therefore, it is trustworthy and true. And whether we can verify the account or not doesn't matter. One day, we are confident that evidence proving the biblical account as true will come to light. In the meantime, given the vagaries of archaeological understanding, the debates about dates, the ambiguity of the evidence, we are happy to stick with the Bible, thank you very much, because we trust its account as true. And if God did command the slaughter of the Canaanites, then that must be because in his infinite wisdom and his sovereignty, he knew that this was the righteous judgment they deserved. Others, and there are sincere believers among them, would argue that what we have in Joshua is an account of Israel's entry into the land, which is based on ancient traditions, uh, but we can't verify them. And to ask the question whether these things actually happened or not is to ask a question which cannot be answered and to some extent is to miss the point. The question is, what do these traditions tell us about Israel's faith in God? And how can we learn from them as we formulate and develop our own faith in God? So if... Jericho was never actually conquered in the manner described. And if the inhabitants were never slaughtered in the manner described, well, that lets those of us who are squeamish about such things off the hook, to some extent. And maybe we can think of the story being written when a time in Israel was plagued by syncretism and idolatry, and Joshua is presented as the ideal leader whose total trust in God and wholehearted obedience to God meant a complete absence of compromise. He put his hand to what God told him to do without turning back. He was completely ruthless in eradicating sin. If so, then the lesson to be learned is one of total heartfelt commitment to God 
and his purposes. Tying in perhaps with what Rosemary was talking about, leadership early on. We need people to have that focus on what God is telling them to do without being swayed by secondary considerations. Jesus made a similar point when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut them off. I don't see many people sitting in front of me with only one eye, one hand and one foot. So I conclude that people have understood that Jesus never meant us to take his words literally. Maybe we should read the Joshua account in the same way. So this is a, an account which polarises people in their reactions to it. We can all agree it is a story of commitment and faith and dedication to God. When it comes to what actually happened, we may part company in how we respond over that. But we still admire Joshua for his obedience and his faith and trust in God. He was a great leader. But I'd like to reflect a bit on what it means to devote the city and everything in it to the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. Which is what Joshua commands the people to do in chapter 6, verse 17. There, devoting the city and its inhabitants completely to the Lord meant that everything had to be handed over to God and you couldn't keep anything for yourself. Everything made of silver and gold, bronze or iron had to be placed in the Lord's treasury because it was God's, not theirs. And you could not take any of the people or animals as booty for yourself. You couldn't take prisoners. You weren't allowed to take them as plunder. Everything had to be dedicated to the Lord. And that meant either by being placed in the treasury, if it was silver, gold or precious metal, or by being destroyed. To us, that cannot appear as anything rather than a bit brutal, barbaric, and some of us would say deplorable. But if I were to tell you that we are called to devote the town of Horsham to the Lord, your friends, your neighbours, one of our 60 roads, if you are committed to one of our 60 roads, how would you interpret that, dedicating this town to the Lord? I hope you would not interpret it as a command to go out and stock up on Kalashnikovs so that you can engage in a major killing spree. But we are called to devote our friends and neighbours in this town to God, but to do so in prayer. And that means to place them in God's hands, to give them over to God, to entrust them to God, to dedicate them to him, their Lord, their creator, and their redeemer. Why then for us does devoting this town to the Lord mean praying for them rather than slaughtering them? Well, at one level we have Jesus' teaching, don't we? Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who treat you badly. In other words, Jesus teaches us that no one is to be the object of our hatred. Everyone is to be the focus of our love and prayers. So to some extent, it's a different ballgame, different scenario. And what we might ask turns a God of violence into a God of love. So that now we dedicate people to God by praying for them rather than wiping them out. 
To some extent it is that with the coming of Jesus, our picture of God has changed so that we see far more clearly what God is really like. But also, also we know that Jesus gave his life to redeem the lives of all those for whom we pray. Jesus suffered violence and destruction when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. It was there that he took upon himself the catastrophic effects of sin, redeeming us from death and bringing us into God's kingdom. Everyone for whom we pray is someone for whom Christ died. And Christ died so they don't have to. It's a different remedy for sin. Rather than eradicating the sin by wiping out the sinner, God has decided to deal with the sin in the person of his son and save the sinner. The problem of human sinfulness remains the same, but the solution is radically, vastly different. And that's why when we dedicate this town to God, we dedicate it to a God who is this town's saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we look up and we see Jesus standing before us, we know that's what he's calling us to do. So let me close by adapting a prayer written by the Emperor Constantine. And he was a pretty warlike leader, actually. Um, but he prayed, O Christ, ruler and lord of the world, to you we consecrate this land, its scepter and its power. Guard your land. Guard it from every foe. And picking up on his words, we pray to you, O Christ, we consecrate this town, its inhabitants, its businesses, our friends, our neighbours. You died to redeem us from destruction. You shed your blood to make us holy. We commit this place and all who live in it to you, the creator, the saviour, the Lord of the world. Protect us and deliver us from all evil. And we ask that those for whom we pray may one day of their own accord entrust themselves to your love, your grace, and your sovereign protection. We offer ourselves 
and this place in which we live and work to you. Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.